Hello, 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 and welcome to Fire Five. I'm Steve Horney, your host from Integrated Health Sciences, and I would like to welcome you all tonight. The pleasure and honor that we have of having Paula Tercy in the house. Paula, how are you doing today? I'm so good, and it's really nice to be here with you. I know, this is nice. You and I are used to seeing each other, and this will do for now, so I'll take it. I still feel the energy, and I'm excited for what we have to come. So I've known Paula for quite some time, 10 years minimum. We started working together because I rented some space from you, realized that we got along and jived well, and then started teaching and taught a yoga teacher training portion that was offering anatomy, physiology, pathology, corrective exercise, which ended up being much more a part of my career, having those four things as a package to give to trainers, to Pilates instructors, to yoga instructors, having all of that, you and I were the first people to actually put that together and make that something. And for that, I thank you quite a bit. Now I've learned a lot from you over the years and I talk about you a lot as far as how we can end up as trainers learning from the OG movement scientists, which is all of you yogis. I have also just had the pleasure of knowing you. Um, I know it's been kind of interesting just to see your reflections grow and see how many people it's helped. So that's kind of my version of your story. I don't think, I think I could fill a whole webcast just talking about how much joy I think you've brought and how helpful you've been in my career. But why don't you tell us your story? Just take us through the whole thing. Oh, the whole thing is the whole. long um, because I've gotten old over the years. But um, just thank you again for uh, for asking me to be a part of this. We do go back um, such a far way, and it was always so wonderful to be able to teach with you because I think the cross of how you taught and how I taught was really perfect. Um, and you know that's how we want to serve our community, right? With these things that kind of come together synergistically. But um, this has been an odd path for me because it, um, and, and more of what I want to talk about tonight is that people think about yoga as a, a way to get flexible. And of course, you're going to get flexible and maybe to get strong. And of course, that's going to happen too. But for me, it's, it's, um, it's a path of life. And I so want, now that we have the time, for people to understand it that way and to incorporate it in their life as, as a governing force in their life. And so that's what it was for me since I was a young girl. I think the first time I started yoga, I was 16. And I wandered into this church and this gorgeous woman all in white came and greeted me. And she taught the most beautiful Hatha yoga class. And I thought I was with an angel. And um, I remember in the, you know, in the Savasana where you lie down and relax, I felt asleep totally. And it was just in this loving embrace. And so I saw her for a little bit and then I dropped off and did, you know, lots of things that teenagers do, which don't have much to do with yoga at all. And then, <laughs> and then I found my way back to yoga uh, back in the time of the ashram. So there were no there were no yoga studios then like there are now. And there were, there was definitely no yoga and gyms. There were hardly any gyms then it was Sivananda and integral yoga. Mm -hmm. That's all there were. So I literally, I know there's a word guru associated with my name. That is not me. I studied with real gurus, guys with big white beards. And, um, so funny. 
this man. I'm literally was my teacher. And so um, I, that's where I spent, spent many years at the Integral Yoga Institute learning yoga as a form of meditation and yoga yogic philosophy as a way to live my life and that was really um what was i was most curious about because i was studying psychology at the time and i thought wow these two things come together so beautifully and they're incorporating my body and what i eat with my mental health and I, and it was perfect and, and when i would present these things i i was um getting my PhD and when I would present these things, my teachers at the time would say, no, we, we can't really hear this. This isn't, this isn't Sullivan. This isn't, you know, Freud, this isn't, um, no, we're not interested. And the funny, really funny thing now is many of these teachers are teaching <laughs> on the university level. Now I was just a little ahead of my time, <laughs> but, um, but for me, it was just this perfect combination of things that, um, could guide you through life in totality. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it became my passion. And I think I'm at 35 years, literally, of doing this. <laughs> I stopped counting at some point. <laughs> but you know, people say, do you practice? And you know, I don't know if it's a practice anymore. It's more of a way of life. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And and recently, what was one of the more recent continuing education retreats that you went on? How did that end up pivoting you in a certain way? And do you know which which one I'm referencing? No. You, you were on a retreat and you were, it was, I felt like it was a ton of people in this hotel where you guys were all kind of stuck there. And I don't think you were allowed to talk a ton. Um, has that pivoted you or was that you coming off of that and this is the thing or talk to me? So that was with a different kind of teacher. Um, Joe Dispenza is an amazing, amazing scientist. Um, he really has looked at meditation from, he's broken it down, he's tested the brain, he's, he's looked at it for real because we're all trying to pull this um, science out of the mystical in a way, to bring it back into the mystical. Because what happens, right, is that when you really start to understand meditation, you recognize that you're changing your endocrine system, the way that your hormones speak to one another. And this is what enables us to open the higher glands so that we can make these bigger connections. So he's literally broken it down to a science. And I had some pretty expanded and intense experiences with him that changed me completely. I would say changed me completely, like from a uh, wonder and I really kind of really know this is true to like, oh my God, okay, there's no more questioning. This mm. stuff is actually real. Um, there is no mystical about it. It's just something not everyone can connect to so easily. It takes a little work. Um, and so that's where I've been. And the beauty, you know, um, we do this silver lining meditation every morning on Instagram. And um, because I feel like in, in all the hardships that we've had with the COVID um, uh, situation, we've also had a lot of gifts. And that's life in general, right? You're going to have hardships. And if, but if you look, there are gifts always brought to us. And so as a community, as my yoga studio had to move online, they've really picked up an actual practice, Steve. Like mm -hmm. they practice every single day. Yeah. They're meditating with me every single morning. So where we were never getting past the first two or three pages of any one of these books, whether they're 
asanas or meditation or breathing. We just kept doing the same things. So we could like literally like wash off the stress from our bodies. Mm -hmm. That's all we're doing. Just kind of washing it off. The next day would be right. They're able to go really, they have been able to go very deep and we are like, they're truly meditating. They're getting the metaphysical part of it. And that is so exciting to me because that's where the chemistry of the brain changes. And so if we are doing yoga just to become flexible or strong, we're missing the boat. <laughs> There's so much more and it's so much more beautiful than just that. And so they've been, you know, we have classes every day. So they take classes every day and their practice has gotten deep and their flexibility is there. And they're understanding that we do asana practice to realign the nervous system. And they're like, oh, I get this. I feel this. I am, I am changing. And I've been just, I feel like at, finally I'm actually teaching. That's so, that's so cool. I get asked this a ton when I'll give an exercise or something like this, like, uh, how often should I do this? How many reps and sets and things like that? And <laughs> I had a previous guest on where it was seven by 52. It's, the, the, the best um, set rep scheme is seven days a week, 52 weeks. That's a way to make real change. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying. So to keep going down this path, what is yoga and what is it not? So, yeah, so that was the funny way we put this together, right? Because I think that we get confused. I think that we go in, we take a class. Yoga is about flexible flexibility. Yoga is about some beautiful choreography. Um, but it really is none of those things. If we actually study the books, we recognize that there, you, asana is a very small part of it. It's a very necessary part of it, but it's one of the eight limbs. And when we aren't practicing all of the eight limbs of yoga, we're missing the whole system. It's like only doing one thing in a complete system. You're just not going to understand the totality. And so that's what most people do. They they hardly ever meditate. They don't really do a breathing practice. They, they don't crack a, a, a book on the sutras at all. And so they're missing all the other stuff. And they're just kind of concerned with their body. And yoga is concerned with your body as it is the holder of your emotions. It is the uh, encapsulation of, of any uh, disorganization in your nervous system. And when I'm doing us, I can start to coordinate myself and realign my nervous system so that the systems, all of our body systems, are communicating. Hmm. And that changes the endocrine system in a way that it is communicating. And then I no longer have things like IBS, hmm. depression, um, anxiety. These are the things that we've literally in during COVID have come people with with chronic lifelong problems are really starting to change. They're surprising themselves. They're like, I didn't think it was possible. And I was shocked at my new response or I was shocked at how my body felt. And it is it's not a quick fix. It is a, something that we do the way that you explained it seven times 52. Right? <laughs> your life is a practice of life. That's so, that's so cool to hear. Just And what are some of the other, you said the limbs, there's eight of them. What are some of the other ones just, you don't have to give all of them, but just like a couple of the other ones, just so we can conceptualize that a little bit. So asana is a limb. 
Uh, movement practice, the postures. Yeah. Breathing is another limb. Mm-hmm. Meditation is another limb. Um, then there are things, they call them yamas and niyamas, ways to live your life. Like you might think of them as the commandments, but they're not like that. You know, it's going to burn in hell, but it's, you know, ways to look at like non-attachment, watch what you are attaching to. This might bring you misery, um, uh, cleanliness in your life, keeping your, you know, keeping your body healthy, keeping your mind healthy. So there are several of them. There's contemplation, um, there's studying the scriptures. And so as we move through all the limbs, we create this total, um, process of how to live your life but it is completely without judgment so lots of religions have these processes in them as well Mm -hmm. um but then if you don't do it something bad happens to you and and it's not like that it's like this is a scientific system that i can follow and really start to whittle away some of the things that have been plaguing me and stopping me from moving forward in my life Um, and but they have to be done in totality. I have to be aware of what I'm ingesting. It matters. Mm-hmm. It has a great effect. That's so, that's so interesting. So you touched a little bit on this, but the second question is, is it a God-based practice? So it is a consciousness-based practice, right? So there is no God. It is. Uh, it, it deals more with um, quantum physics and frequencies, right? Mm-hmm. Energy that exists all around us. Everything is made of energy, that's science, right? Um, So there is a universal energy, which we would call love, love consciousness. It is the highest vibration that any of us can ever experience. It is completely unconditional. It is not a man. It is not a woman. It is not a person. (laughs) It is an energy that imbues all human beings and in fact, everything. And when we're in that vibration, through kind of realigning ourselves, we have the capacity to experience it consciously. And then that happens, we get a huge download of a realignment of our whole system. Mm. So one of the things that happened to me, um, you know, when you get the morning willies? Like, yeah. Like you wake up and you're like, life sucks. We're all going to be, we're all going to die and it's horrible and I don't have any money. You know, just you wake up and your brain is like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we, I think we all suffer them, right? What do they call them? The Monday, this or that? Like there's people have all kinds of phrases for them. Yeah. And um, pretty much 100% of the people that have been meditating with every morning say they're gone. Oh, wow. They just, because you start your day in a high vibration. Mm-hmm. You just set the tone for your experience. And it's not like, you know, people will say, well, I repeat my mantra, right? This, you know, positive affirmation. It really isn't that. It is a connection that you make with the world at large. And, 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 and so doing right. And this is just the meditation part. I am now like setting my system up to receive goodness instead of being connected to my, kind of small logistical mind that's always worrying and always doubting and always neurotic. I kind of pull myself away from that and find something much deeper and much more aligned with who I know myself to be. That that makes perfect sense. No, no, no. That's exactly, I mean, that the amygdala's job and for, for 
anyone who's not like particularly familiar with neuro like neuroanatomy there's a portion of your brain whose job really it is to worry and panic um and that's good if you're starving and you're an animal and you need to find food that there are certain things that would turn that up and certain things that might turn that down and it's just interesting to hear you talk about that that you know whether like no one's amygdala would ever disappear in fact i believe that they there are certain people because of certain conditions where the amygdala has been lost and and i i think all in all you're better off having it in there but i could be wrong about that <laughs> but it's for for most of us for for most of us it's going to be there and acknowledging that and realizing that it won't ever be gone but it is just a part of the voices that may be giving you an internal monologue and therefore it's a part of you but your relationship to it is something that that can change and something that can be worked on does that align with what you're talking about i think this is quintessential stephen paula teaching now right this is the funny thing is that for anyone who's taken us like you would think for how complimentary paula and i are to one another you would assume that we just like say the exact same things and we're always finishing each other's sentences. And it's actually quite the opposite. It's like, she'll say something and it'll be here and it'll resonate with the group. And then I'll say something that from my lens, now we're almost always in agreement, which is really nice, but I'll say the same thing a completely different way. So then whoever is learning from us gets a nice spherical outlook. Like for that thing, did you need that hyper analytical scientific anatomy physiology basis? Just listen to Steve. Did you need to just be able to like kind of understand it and quantify and almost feel what it is? Oh, listen to Paul on that one. And then, and then I think we've each kind of learned how to wear each other's hats, which is really nice. Like there are times where I'm like, got to go Paula on this group. Like definitely got to go Paula. And maybe you've had the same experience. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. But one of the ways that I would explain it for the lay person, right, um, is because this is literally what's happening, you know, our addiction to our cell phones, right? It's this beautiful tool, the amygdala, a beautiful tool, something that I can uh, engage with more or less. So I have this phone and I can use it for things, but now I'm obsessed with it and it is really using me. Mm -hmm. Right. I can't put it down. I can't shut it off. It, I'm constantly neurotically connected to it. Mm -hmm. This is that part of our brain. I call it the small logistical mind. Right. So yeah. I am obsessed with leading my life through that lens mm -hmm. when there are other things to be doing, other ways to be functioning. And so the higher self, right, the higher consciousness is another way. And this is where we can align with our truest nature which is um, oftentimes part of what we judge. We judge ourselves for being ourselves. It's not enough, we should try harder. Um, it's, the person I want doesn't want me because I, I, I'm not, I don't look or feel or act a certain way. So we're in constant judgment, literally of who we are as if we could change that. You cannot try harder. <laughs> yeah. You must stop trying and start being oh. and loving who you are. And then this is when we, um, fall in line with our higher self are for lack of a better term our god-given self mm. and we enter the world that way as if who i am is a gift to you because it is particularly when i'm in when i am in alignment 
when I'm in my small cell phone brain, mm. I'm judging, I am neurotic, I am doubtful, and nobody wants that part of me, right? They don't want that part of me. So that this is what we do in meditation is we put it to the side, use it as a tool, and meet the world from this bigger, more integrated place, which means that I just naturally exercise more. I naturally eat better because my smaller mind isn't giving me negative feedback. That's a really interesting, that's a really interesting way to approach that. And I think you explained that incredibly well. I think you already kind of touched on this, but do I have to meditate to do yoga? But answer that question as a standalone. I would say yes, <laughs> to do yoga under the big full umbrella of all the lips. Yeah. Because in reality, the asana, the posture, is a very small part of yoga with a big Y, right? It's just one of the limbs, one of the eight, and not one of the most important ones. So when we're talking about yoga correctly, we're talking about the entire system. That is yoga. We've interchanged the word yoga to asana. We say they're the same. They're not the same. Asana are the postures. And yoga is the science. And so in order to completely do yoga, I must meditate. It is one of the eight limbs. That's so cool. And the most important limb, probably. Oh, okay. That, that's really interesting. So then what does breath have to do with all of it? So we work from the gross to the subtle. And so first I align my nervous system through my physical form. I connect the messaging from one joint to the next, one muscle to the next. So that's what I'm doing in the asana practice. And that's the, literally the most gross part of the practice. Mm -hmm. And then I move to something more subtle, which is breath or pranayama. And that starts to align my being on a much more subtle level and bringing everything into harmony. And it prepares my nervous system to be able to sit in meditation. Because to sit cold without doing those two things is quite hard because the brain is, you know, it's pulsing. It's constantly mm -hmm. sending us these messages. And so it's better for me to go through this process so that when I sit to meditate, it's like butter. simply yeah. just flows. Yeah. And, and <coughs> you talked on a couple of the pranayama, different, di some of the different breaths, like ujjayi ends up just kind of like take me through the more common ones. And, and I almost say that because I will do deep dives as I've shared with you and, and a lot of people who have been listening every week. Um, I went into a nice little kind of rabbit hole with yoga, um, just doing it more frequently, trying to learn more about it. But I'm not saying there's misinformation out there, but it's hard to kind of get to the to get to get multiple sources to align with the same answer and i'm not even saying that they're wrong it's just that's the lens that they're choosing to view it so can you give us a few of the common breaths and then like where they come came from which you may have already answered but then also just what they are what their purposes are mm -hmm. so ujjayi breathing is heroic breathing let's say that's sometimes called heroic breathing and that's the breath that will typically um, be taught in a, in a movement class mm -hmm. um, because it keeps a pace, right? It allows me to separate the inhale from the exhale and create inner body space. Um, and it also is this wonderful indicator. If, I am, if I've lost that rhythm, if I've lost that pace, if I've lost the space between the inhale and the exhale, I've lost the asana. Mm. 
right? So if my breath starts to get short and the inhale and exhale get stuck to one another again, I've I'm far beyond what I'm able to actually do. I want to be able to move through all the postures so fluidly that my breath will never change. Uh, gotcha. It will always keep that perfect rhythm and space. Gotcha. So that's the breath we primarily use for movement. Then we have something like Kapalabhati, which is a Kriya, so it's a cleanse, and it's non-diaphragmatic, which means you're not actually using your diaphragm the way you do to breathe. Mm -hmm. You're pumping your belly, and it's more of a cleanse. And what so, does that sound like? Do you mind just quickly demonstrating the Ujjayi, just so we can get, and then also this breath, if you don't mind, not to put you on the spot. Sure, sure. So the Ujjayi, often people will do it from their throat. I'm going to show a little different uh, way to do it. So I can sound like this. I'm going to close my lips. Goes in through here. But the correct way to do it is here. And when I'm so cool. <laughs> when I'm doing it that way, you might be able to see like my my palate domes, mm -hmm. my upper palate domes, and it really opens a channel behind my ears, connecting all things, right? But if I'm flattening my palate, when we do it from the back of the throat, we flatten the palate, mm -hmm. so we're not opening this space. Okay. Mm -hmm. So. So that's where the restriction then comes from, because I, if I'm hearing noise, there has to be restriction somewhere from your lungs to your mouth or to your nose. So that's where that restriction is coming. And, you know, you create the glottis there, right? So the, the back, you know, it's like when you whistle, right? It's the back of the throat gets smaller. So that's happening Ooh. in Ujjayi, right? Gotcha. So there's some restriction there. But, but what we do is like we push it down and then we do it at the throat. And one of the major premises is to keep I'm down at my pelvic floor all the way to my crown as an open channel. So we're aligning the energy systems. The chakras, of course, are the energetic components of the endocrine system. Mm -hmm. Wherever there's a chakra, where, wherever there's a chakra, there's yeah. an endocrine gland that reflects it or the other way around. Yeah. And so we want to keep that space open and flowing. With When Ujjayi is done incorrectly, it kind of pushes it down. It, it is the purpose of not the purpose, not that there's like one purpose, but does the vagus nerve factor into that breath is the way that you practice it? Or you, you think that's just kind of a, 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 an innocent positive bystander? I can't answer that completely. I don't know. I think it's a bystander, but I don't know. I bet you, it, I mean, that's so when you're humming and for anyone who's listening right now, the vagus nerve is a main nerve of your parasympathetic nervous system. So your nervous system breaks down into two, uh, you have your active, your voluntary nervous system, but then your autonomic or involuntary has two main branches, your sympathetic nervous system, which is if someone ends up being in a room and a tiger gets dropped in, immediately your, eye, your pupils are gonna dilate, your respiratory rate's gonna go up, your heart rate's gonna go up, and all the blood is gonna go to your muscles so you can either run or fight. 
The other portion of the involuntary nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. And the longest nerve that's considered part of the parasympathetic nervous system is the vagus nerve. And it travels down in that area before it goes to innervate the rest of a lot of your organs. And one way that you can stimulate the vagus nerve, which would then have a calming effect. So picture it almost as a as if this is your brain, there's cranial nerves that end up coming out and they're kind of extensions of your brain. And that vagus nerve could be considered an extension of your brain. And it only really has the ability to calm you down. So imagine you had a nerve that was right here that we knew if you stimulated it, it would calm your nervous system down. And it, people humming, people singing, people holding, the end of an exhale, all stimulate that vagus nerve. And my hunch is that when you're practicing ujjayi breath appropriately, the way that you just described it and where you described it's occurring, that you're stimulating the vagus nerve, therefore stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, therefore having a calming effect. That's it. I've, I've never learned that. I'm not saying it, but that's how I would put the pieces to what you said together. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're on to something. I know. Right? Once again, the, the wonders never cease. Oh, that's so cool. But isn't this the beautiful part of it? It's like mm -hmm. when we can say that these ancient practices, and they are ancient practices, yeah. we can now explain them physiologically from completely two different disciplines. We we know there's this is a universal truth, right? This right. is they under they understood what they were doing, whether they could name it or not. I don't know, yeah. but they explain it. And when, you know, if, if for yoga, it's a, it's a little bit of a game of telephone, right? Because it does get spoken and spoken and spoken and, you know, it gets lost in a lot of ways. So you do have to do your homework. But um, when you, when you do it correctly, you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, this is what they were doing. That, what I was doing before was crazy and not at all what they wanted me to do. This was it. When I made that physical discovery of the Ujjayi breath, I was like, oh, that never felt right. right. But that's how I was told to do it. And through my own exploration, realizing how every, and feeling how everything opened, I recognized, oh, there's, there's a little tweak in this game of telephone I have to make. And then could you demonstrate the, the other breath pattern for us? The Palabhati? Yes, please. The Kriya. So that is, um, that is where you're moving your abdomen. Um, and so I'll often have people make fists and you can't see my belly, but I'm pushing. What will happen with that breath? So I'm not breathing through my nose. I'm pushing my belly. It's pushing out the breath. And then I'm releasing my belly and the littlest sliver of air comes into my nose. So I'm going to do it for a couple of pumps. So you can see. Yep. So my diaphragm is like a trampoline and it's pumping upward. Yeah. Oftentimes I'll see people do something like this because they hear the sound. They think it's correct, but it's not. You can maybe see where the direction of my diaphragm. Mm -hmm. that would absolutely not be correct, right? I yeah. wanna be able to bounce. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. Maybe. I may as well give you the whole.
my diaphragm gets this nice exercise. My abdominals get exercise. My heart gets exercise. It's mm -hmm. stimulating all of that. And I'm not breathing, which is why they call it non-diaphragmatic. I'm not inhaling and exhaling. The pumping of the belly is pushing the breath out, and the release of the belly is pulling just enough breath in for me to go into 100 reps if I wanted. That is super cool. Thank you so much for, for demonstrating that. Cool. So how can yoga actually help me? If you, it, well, I think if you practice it earnestly, um, I think it can change your entire life. I, I have seen it in myself and in others really affect um, some very difficult states of mind. I've seen it change people's depression. I've seen it change people's anxiety. I've seen it um, change people's self-loathing. You know, these things that we suffer with as humans. Uh, you know, being human is no easy task. It is no easy task. Um, if I don't practice it properly, I might get more of that. Yeah. I might just try to get all those fancy poses and realize I can't and then be more discouraged yeah. and again think I'm not enough. When all that's doing is just opening my channels so that I can be connected and present in my life with my partner, with my family, with with my boss, with my day, where I am not stuck here, but I can hear you. I can let you finish a sentence. I can digest what you're saying. I can be present with you. And I think, you know, for me, that changed everything. That That's so, that's so cool to hear. And I, I think that this is probably as good a time to mention that a lot of the people who are it's interesting because it's like biohackers has become a term now. Um, there's even like two of my friends, one has it, one is going for it. PhDs in human performance. Um, even a lot of the strength and performance and strength and conditioning coaches are moving much more towards mindsets that you're talking about because if it works to get an athlete to get that extra 2% that could change their life dramatically, it will probably help you in your day-to-day -day life. But a lot of times it's not actually going harder at something. It's actually, for us, it's, it's pushing the recovery lever a little bit harder. And in that recovery level, lever is your sleep, which is obviously really important. Your stress, your diet and digestion, you're, you're, the fact that you're not exercising too hard and you all, I think, strike a really good balance when it's not done in pathology. Meaning if you do work out too hard and you try and beat your body up to make it compliant with the way that you want it to think, you in general will raise cortisol levels. So cortisol is a stress hormone that's very normal hormone. It starts high in the beginning of the day, ends up hopefully coming down somewhere as the sun is setting down and then doing it all over again. But if you're continually 
beating yourself up. And we talk about moderate exercise versus vigorous exercise. Moderate meaning that you could talk, but you couldn't necessarily uh, sing. And then vigorous meaning that you can say a few words, but you can't really like talk a full sentence. If you hit that vigorous really, really hard, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you hit it really hard and you don't hit the recovery lever hard, then you're going to end up decreasing performance. So that's actually how a lot of people in the strength world have gotten to all the things that you're talking about. But the reason that we're all landing on them is because they work. And whether it came from mystical sources or then fuels the science and the science takes some of it, throws it away, or it's just trying to figure out a different way in order to explain the rationale for what we know best right now, we're all landing on the same things. The things that you talk about and the things that I talk to my patients about aren't very different because we're all trying to help people out. And the way that you really help people out is, we talk about it as far as our eight foundations of health. So it's your hydration, diet and digestion, sleep, stress, exercise, ergonomics, which really just like the patterns and positions that you put yourself in, breathing and connection with self, community, and your self-community and, and nature, to be honest with you. Like that's, that's the final one that sometimes I have to sell people on, sometimes I don't. But everyone's focusing on those same things. We're all just kind of coming at it from a different angle. So it, it's, it's just always cool to hear when you, it's the confirmation bias at its finest. Like when I hear you talk and it's things that I know that I've tried to encourage people to do, it's nice to hear that as well. So is flexibility necessary to practice yoga? No, <laughs> it's not at all necessary. No. Um, in, in fact, it is a hindrance sometimes. I feel like often if, um, if you're very flexible, um, you're not taking the journey quite as much, right? It comes easily to you. And one of the things that uh, helps us to create a journey is to get stuck somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Any good journey you've ever taken had like some dismal moment to it. Right. And that made it a great journey. So when we're in our body and we can't quite get somewhere, we actually have to pause and figure it out. We have to get present with the obstacle. And that's true in our body. And um, when we're very flexible, we go more into the performance of things. Well, look what I can do. Look what I can do. And then I bet they come wind up at your door because they do get injury yeah. quite often, right? When you're hyperflexible, um, where if you you don't have all that much flexibility, you have to pay more attention. You have to be with that moment of being tangled and see how you can actually untangle it without hurting yourself. Mm-hmm. So um, I was not naturally flexible at all. And um, through the practice, I, I've, I've struck a balance between strength and flexibility. That's, and you opened my eyes to how important strength and stability and, and tension in the body is. And I don't mean bad tension, I mean good tension. Like we say this to our power lifters when we're trying to get them into a lift that just like playing spin the bottle at a family reunion, we're trying to create tension here. And you were one of the best people, that's pretty good, you can use it. So that you were one of the first people that talked me through the rooting and the spinning in, in just a simple warrior pose. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm gonna talk through it from my side, and then I'm sure I kind of like telephone gamed it and that's okay, but let's say I'm in a warrior pose. So my one leg's back, my one leg's forward. On the front leg, 
much like the way that we would cue a lunge, I'm rooting or burying that big knuckle into the ground and I'm spinning that leg away from it. So I've almost created balanced tension in the front leg. And then the back leg where that foot's more on a 45 degree-ish angle, whatever angle it might be, I'm burying the outside or my fifth bone, same thing, like kind of like the fifth or pinky toe knuckle, if you will, down into the ground. And then I'm spinning that leg into internal rotation forward. So I have balanced tension on that. And my goal is if I can get enough tension, a balanced tension from my feet to come through to my legs, that I can get enough tension that it'll irradiate into my pelvic floor and start to stabilize my core. How did I do, teach? Teacher. Who's your teacher? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My bundas, right? Did I get that right? The bundas, they're the bundas. bundas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that was okay. Yes. So you're the one that's you're perfect, talking. actually. And why do I care about this? Um, so one, I do need, right? I need stability, stability in my pelvic floor. I need abdominal stability to support my back, etc. Um, but the other thing that that does is it enables us to access our inner body. And before we end, I'll do another breath with you that we use a lot to open up the third eye. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I don't have any of that, I can't actually do this breath. And it's really hard to open that space. Because That's remember, everything that they're doing is in service of this bigger connection to vastness. Mm -hmm. They don't really, they never cared, right, about strong abs or any of that. Right. That just was not their thing. Right? Anything, it yeah. was everything I'm doing is pointing toward discovering who I really am. Oh, that's so cool. Nice. I like it. So the bonus question for this, and then we can feel free to take this any way you like it. And obviously we're going to start. So anyone who's uh, online with us, start to think about some of your questions. But, and I might throw in the word bro here, but like, I lift weights so I don't have to do yoga, right, bro? True or false? Oh, well, what do you think, right? No, you're your life, right? Do it more. Right. The people who can't wipe their butts need to be doing yoga. The people that can put their back, their feet on the back of their head need to be doing strength training. It's like we're all just want to feel good and be great at something, but be balanced. Like do things that you're really bad at, and you'll probably be a more spherical, well-rounded human. Did I, does that hit you in the same spot? Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. And then again, if we go back to why we're doing it, I mean, you could be lifting weights, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you're not suffering. Yeah. Right. You're not, yeah. you don't have some, some others, you know, psychological malady going on in your, in your existence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the balance, I mean, if you've been spending your days shortening your muscles, you definitely need to find a way to release some of that tension. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and find that softer self because one of the things that we get in yoga is the ability to respond with grace, right? We, we're not reactions to things. It's this being able to reach out and move more like a gazelle. Um, and that's what any great athlete has, right? The elegance of it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing, that the, the thing that I kind of want to make the differentiation is what you've talked about. But I think it's also from an outsider standpoint to understand what you're saying and completely corroborate what you're saying is in your classes, you don't give an inch 
of flexibility where you don't give that person stability as well, which for us, we would say is true mobility. Like mobility is being able to actually own your new range of motion in a functional way. I've been in other classes where I felt like it was very much get more range of motion, get more range of motion, get more range of motion, but you're not actually teaching the nervous system that you have that new range of motion, that you really have that new range of motion. You just kind of get it for the sake of getting it. And one of two things happens. One, it's kind of like you just wrote a whole term paper and forgot to click save before you X out and it's lost and it doesn't carry over. Or the worst, and which is unfortunately why people end up with me, is now you have 10 more degrees of motion, but you don't know how to control it. And you're much more susceptible to be getting injured in that new 10 degrees of range of motion that you didn't have. So I kind of want to like back up what you're saying is that it's not just about being flexible or we would just say increasing your range of motion. It is truly owning and creating total body tension in that range of motion. And if it expands, that's great too. Like it, it seems like it always felt to me like your focus was stability and then moving kindly on the journey of flexibility rather than flexibility for flexibility. And here's like a side of stability. A am I quoting you right on that? No, for sure. I mean, it, it always happens in a process too. You always present the stability before the mobility. You always present the internal rotation before the external rotation. Yeah. <coughs> These things have to happen in an order. <coughs> Sorry. That's okay. So in order to kind of like, when you're saying like lifting versus yoga, I, 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 again, this is exactly what we just said, but doing both is really beautiful. Your yoga is going to help your lifting and your lifting is going to help your yoga. Your, your yoga may make it a little bit easier to get into the positions for the lift. And then you can really like own that stability or you're hyper stable. And so then that carries over. So that's one less thing you have to worry about when you're walking into a yoga practice. So it's nice how they, though may seem, and maybe this is like a microcosm for me and you, may seem to come at things from very different angles, but they end up meeting together really nicely sometimes. Sure. And the, and the coordination that you get, right, how you're able to pass up something through each joint with consciousness, I think, is, is essential, particularly when you're doing something like lifting or kettlebell so that they're not these jerky actions that are going to cause harm. But there's this beautiful fluidity that's coming from your core out to the fingertips and back again. Like, can you follow? Can you stay conscious enough to follow that whole flow? And that's why I think meditation has a really nice handoff. Meditation, to totally boil it down, you could say if it had to be one word, it's focus. And if you can really focus, you have a chance at being more conscious and therefore having more mindful movement. And that's what we're always striving for. But I think it's something that comes much more naturally to people in your practice. So once again, we thank you for letting us borrow it. We'll give it back to you when we're done. So to tie everything up, um, anyone right now get any chat questions, drop it in. Uh, we'll answer anything that you got. But if, if people are going to fill that up, cool. If not, Paul, tell us one, where people can find you. And then two, just give us some kind of closing remarks. Sure. 
Well, you can find us now. We've shifted completely online, and, and I think for now we'll stay there. Um, it seems like the best decision for the independent uh, studio owner. Um, we've also uh, kind of refocused things um, so that we are kind of meeting the needs of a bit of an older clientele. We're looking at 40 and above um, because we just older. find that they're more interested in um and what we have to teach you know that and not and anyone could come but we're talking about things that happen in your body when you hit 40 when you hit 50 when you hit 60 when you hit 70. our oldest client now is 90. for real awesome um it's very beautiful she's adorable just elegant. huggable how huggable is that nice? Very huggable. We're oh. all good. That's what we do, but we don't hug now. We just do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no more hugging. But, um, and so, so we have things like chair yoga is going on in one of our, our um, most popular classes, our sit fit, uh, yoga for strong bones. Um, I teach a bare bones. I also teach um, my favorite class to date is my meditative flow, where everything we talk about just we just discussed gets put into the yoga room. And we use the breath, we use the posture, and we end with meditation. And it the whole time I'm reconnecting you to your drishti, which is your focus point. Mm. So it's one fluid experience from beginning to end. So that's where I'm at these days. That's so cool. And, and on Instagram, you're at Paula Tercy and at Reflections Yoga. At, uh, on, yes, both of those things exist. But every morning at yeah. 8 o'clock at Reflections NYC, I think is our handle, um, you can uh, sit and, and meditate from 8 to 8.30 every morning, obviously free. It's on Instagram. Um, we also have a Saturday morning satsang, completely free from 10 to 11, where we look at the sutras and talk about you know the bigger the bigger things. That's so cool. So before we get out of here, I believe we were promised a third eye breathing and then we will wrap this thing up. And I am already saying thank you so much. This was so great. Oh, thank you. Okay, so let's do it. It's not the easiest thing, but I will show first and then we'll do two and it'll lead you into some kind of meditation. So you do uh, you do want to be sitting um, because you need the earth underneath you. And then um, if you're comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes. And then with your eyes closed, you might notice that your inhale and exhale are very close to one another. So see if you can spread them apart by pausing at the top of your inhale. And then again at the bottom of your exhale. observing the space between those two breaths. And then I'd like you to, through your lips, you're going to exhale all the air out. And then you're going to exhale even more than that. And then even more than that, so your belly feels a little bit tight. You're going to hold that and as you inhale, imagine that you're sipping up the earth from your pelvic floor. So going to pull your pelvic floor up on the inhale. Might need to squeeze your glutes a little bit for that. Bringing it past your navel, squeezing up in the direction of your heart, squeezing up towards your throat. Here you might just drop your chin a little bit. 
This is all that inhale. And when there's no more space, hold that inhale and you're gonna squeeze up like a cat with a hairball. You're just gonna lift and lift and lift and lift and squeeze and hold, bringing the focus to a space right in the center of your brain. Squeezing and holding and lifting and bringing your awareness into a nugget right in the center of your brain. And then holding your focus there, relax your chin, relax your tummy. Let the breath leave your lips, holding the focus at your throat. And that's simply the space of your pituitary gland. And then we'll do that one more time. Exhale through the lips. Exhale more, pulling the belly back. And then if you feel like there's no more left, there's always just a little bit more to tighten the tummy. You're gonna hold it and breathe underneath that tightness in the belly, sipping up through the earth energy, drawing your inhale up toward your navel, toward your heart. When you get to the throat, just dip your chin a little bit keeping that focus in the center of your brain, squeezing and lifting, squeezing and lifting a few more times. It's as if you were squeezing the fluid around your spinal cord and delivering it all the way up to your third eye, holding there. It's a gentle internal focus. And then and you hold the focus there as you release your chin and your tummy and your breath. You'll notice a certain sensation. And this could feel a little bit like you're dissolving. Part of you is dissolving. And when you feel ready, still being aware of that part of your brain, still being aware of the mood that you're in, the state that you're in, you can open your eyes to a softer gaze. And that is what we call the pineal gland breath. That was lovely. Cool. Oh, man. Man and back up. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the group? I cannot thank you enough. That was so awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's always nice talking. Yeah, so exactly. It was really nice. If this is what it took for us to hang out, so be it. But thank you, as always, for sharing your wisdom. And thank you for sharing your wisdom in such a kind, gentle, and loving way. You are truly amazing. Thank you, Paula. And thank you to everyone who came out. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining our movement towards movement.